You're listening to Sidious Playground, a podcast by Leadership Foundations. I'm Rick Enlow, your host, and I'm here with Dave Hillis, president of Leadership Foundations. And you're in the beautiful city of Tacoma, and I'm over here on an island, and we are connected by the miracle of electronic stuff. Absolutely. And yet we are making a podcast. How are you doing, Dave? I'm, I'm well, Rick. Thanks for asking. And how about you? Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to... Uh, to at least moving into six foot range here pretty quick. But this is our second podcast uh, after taking the, uh, you know, the break uh, through the, 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 you know, navigating the the outbreak and all. And in fact, uh, obviously, um, originally we thought, let's make a podcast and maybe it'll go viral. And then we're like, now that's just a terrible metaphor. We're not, you know, right. we're not interested <laughs> in that right. anymore. But, uh, but yeah, no, we, we, uh, we want to pick up that conversation. Uh, and, and in fact, if, you are just joining us for the first time. There is a, a history of these podcasts and conversations that you can tap into. But we were talking about uh, this idea uh, that stems from your book, City is Playground. But um, this this very important aspect of seeing the way the way we see or having a way of seeing. Yeah. And I think it's uh, it's worth first revisiting and then kind of wandering through some of the things that we've observed and that we've heard recently. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, Rick. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's, it's, uh, it's hard to overstate how important I think seeing is particularly within the leadership foundations. And this really originated from a comment I read by uh, really the famous theologian ethicist, uh, Stanley Hauerwas out of Duke, uh, divinity. And Stanley was, um, kind of studying the scripture and he uh, in the fourth chapter of Matthew he is he is reading and right at the end of the fourth chapter it essentially says that anybody that was brought to the feet of Jesus that even touched his cloak was healed and then of course you go to the fifth chapter and for the next three chapters it's the Sermon on the Mount and and Hauerwas in a very kind of insightful way said now if you have that kind of juice uh, would you then stop and preach a sermon for three chapters? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of the quick answer is no, you wouldn't, right? Right. And so he he then said, uh, was Jesus concerned that people were beginning to see him as a miracle man? <clears throat> um, and he began to reflect further on how, uh, you know, decidedly Jesus did not come to earth just to be a miracle man. And it was in that kind of theological conversation, Rick, that this question got raised up. And he just simply said this, he says, true or false, you can only act within the world in which you see. Mm -hmm. Um, As an aside, I've had a chance to teach a few classes, Rick, I know you have as well. And it's it's a wonderful kind of icebreaker to get people kind of debating over this. You'll always have a group that says, well, that's absolutely uh, false. Um, you know, you, you, of course you, you act within the world and see the others will say, no, that's, that's true. That's, that's actually the way I do. And you go back and forth. But in the end, what Howard Wass concluded is that it is true. Um, you can only act within the world in which you see, uh, some of that physical, but also just mental, you know, kind of, mm-hmm. uh, aspects of, of seeing. And so it was really in that space that, uh, we then, you know, in leadership foundation said, uh, to your point, Rick, okay, now the question becomes, how do you see? 
mm-hmm. if that's true, uh, is there a metaphor, a uh, idea that can help begin to direct uh, our our scene? And that really then became the power of seeing the city as a playground. Mm-hmm. Um, On on a very practical level, what we think it means is that we will begin to uh, behave different, act different. Right. Um, And we talk about it oftentimes at three levels, Rick. Uh, The first is theological, uh, that we will see and respond to a God who is a friend of a city rather than an enemy or a Mm -hmm. foe. Uh, We will look at our neighbor. So this is the sociological aspect. And we will see our neighbor as a colleague rather than a, you know, um, kind of competitor. Mm-hmm. And then the third uh, is the economy uh, that we will begin to see the economy as one of abundance rather than scarcity. And all three of those will you, you will see the direct effect of those in a person in terms of the way he or she acts. So mm-hmm. that's kind of the background to this whole important aspect of seeing. Yeah. And, and I think ensure that this is part of uh, uh, part of the idea as well. But it, it, the way others see us or communicate that they see us certainly affects yeah. who we are. I still remember, Dave, one time I was speaking in a high school and uh, the principal told me now just go in the gym and the student body president will be in shortly and uh, get some information on how to introduce you so you can do your little speech. And so this kid walked in and I said, hey, how's it going? And he looked over at me and I said, are you the student body president? And he goes, no. And I said, oh, hey, I thought you were the student body president. You look like student body president to me. And he just like kind of, you know, shakes it off. Right, right. And then this other, you know, kid walks in and is the president, whatever. And this the guy that I that I saw as the student body president just wanted to talk to me and wanted to hang around. And I mean, it was just like I had a bond with this guy, you know, this, this kid that I just met. And I think that anytime somebody can communicate to us that they see something in us. um, And I think this, that's, uh, you know, uh, in contrast, when we see the city, you know, as a place, it totally changes, you know, how we behave for sure. Yeah, that's right. I know that uh, I love that phrase from, uh, James Allison, which I think uh, was part of his doctoral dissertation when he was doing his theological studies, but uh, Easter eyes. Exactly. Just that phrase is such a, you know, a powerful uh, idea about seeing. Now, when you talk about, I like one of your big words is eschatological. (laughs) (laughs) That's a certain way of seeing. Help me remind me what, what you're talking about there. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a sense uh, Rick, and this, I think I referenced this at our last podcast, um, that it's Thomas Merton who talks a lot about this idea of that we are uh, eschatological people. Uh, ultimately, the rough translation of that is that we are people of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we see um, what I know, like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien talked about. Uh, they talked about the U catastrophe, E-U, uh, in literature, uh, you know, adventure for sure, but it ultimately ends well. Uh, it's, a, it's a happy ending. Um, and so, you know, that, that I think we need to reclaim that um, as, as kind of uh, that we are at our you know, core eschatological people. Uh, we, as you said, see, as James Allison said, through Easter eyes. Uh, 
but I think there's a real pull. Um, and I think the COVID-19 reality has made it even deeper, um, you know, to really move to, um, you know, a kind of Armageddon, right? Yeah, a, right. A sense that uh, this thing is all going to blow up. And, uh, and I, you know, just as an aside, Rick, I mean, this is not a time to point fingers or anything, but I, I have been troubled that it's the very people that should be eschatological people, um, you know, the church by and large, that has really led into this narrative um, of how bad, how wrong, how dirty, you know, I mean, fill in the blank. Yeah. So I, I think there's a real crisis afoot with regard to the credibility of the church writ large. Um, yeah. And uh, and so I think, yeah, that that idea of having eschatological eyes is a, is sort of an attempt to reclaim that. Well, it's absolutely uh, uh, on point with the idea that if you already have concluded what you think, you know, the reality is, then you just see, you know, even if it's not there, you see it. I mean, I think that yeah. the the, um, the the conspiracy thing that's swirling it, it's never been more uh I, I don't know like you know popular in the sense of you know like surrounding uh you know all kinds of cultures but it's it's something there's something about the idea that when you um you don't allow your vision to change but you just rewrite the story to fit the vision you already had that suddenly yep. um yep. You know, it, it becomes conspiracy. It's just a strange, strange phenomenon. And and yet at the same time, in the middle of this, when um, the Holy Spirit, you know, you know, causes us to I, I think about that the idea, uh, you know, in the scripture where like the scales fell off, you know, the eyes, you know, all of a sudden, right. you know, right. those especially those those narratives about uh, when Jesus healed somebody who was, you know, blind from yep. birth. Right. Yep. And, and then the then the spiritual leaders just continued in their blindness. Right. You know, so, right. Yeah. So Dr. John Luke's, uh, yeah. you know, poetic approach. Yeah. But I think that, uh, the, the world that LFCs is, uh, uh, a world that really is, um, based on a hope. And, and I think that's, that's what I hear, at least from all the leaders in the, in the cities around the world. Um, yeah. they have this great hope, even in, in, in the middle of, um, vulnerabilities and difficulties. Um, yep. Yep. Yeah. There's a, you know, there's some wonderful, you know, film references for this idea, Rick. I mean, one of, one of my favorites, uh, you know, Shawshank, you know, redemption. And I uh, remember the two central characters, of course, there's Andy Dufresne, um, you know, this, this uh, banker who has supposedly murdered his wife and then there is Red, who is played by Morgan Freeman, and he actually becomes the narrator of the film. Uh, they strike up a great friendship. But, but one of the dominant themes of the film is this idea of hope yeah. um, and, and how you see it. And, of course, uh, Andy comes in and he is, you know, um, a proponent of hope. You know, you've got to keep hope alive. Red at the beginning of the movie um, says just the opposite. Uh, hope is actually a dangerous thing, right? It's 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 going to make you go uh, kind of crazy. And I, and I really have loved watching that movie from that perspective of uh, you know really those two ways of seeing the situation. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, the movie concludes 
with uh, Andy having escaped, right? He's down in Zewatineo. Um, Red is now on his way on a Greyhound to get there. And the last, you know, really minute of the of the film is just Red's voice saying, I hope my, I get to see my friend Randy, right? I hope the Pacific uh, Ocean is as blue as it was in my dreams. I hope I... And, it, and, and the very last phrase is, I hope, and there's no subject to mm-hmm. the, uh, to the phrase. And it's just, it's just an elegant way of what I think does is leadership foundations work. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I hope I get to get back to my neighborhood. I hope I get to get over there and talk to my favorite uh, person who uh, runs this restaurant. I, you know, because we're, we're in the business of hoping for our cities. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, even even the idea that if you see a city as knowable, that, you know, that I can know this city. Yeah, well said. Uh, it, it's it's uh, it's attractive. You know, it, it pulls you in. And and I think, uh, you know, so many times um, I, I think about Jesus when he was when he said, like, uh, I am the good shepherd. And then. And what he said is, you know, hey, this is this is how you can tell. I know the sheep, and they know me. Right. You know, right. and I mean that's how. And I think I see that in the, in the LF network. You know, just a, a remarkable group of men and women who know their city, and the city knows them, and they're doing this good shepherd work. You know, yep. and and I think that does that comes out of sight for sure. Another way that I think of seeing is, um, you know, I actually wear actual glasses, so I have to look through the lens <laughs> that helps well, those, me. Those aren't, those aren't just for uh, fashion's sake, huh? <laughs> no, no, they, they're highly fashionable, but <laughs> they're functional as well. But, you know, that just that idea, we people use that phrase a lot, the lens, yeah. you know, that you look. Yeah. And all of us, we all have it, you yeah. know, and, and I think that the LF lens uh, is, is distinctive. Uh, because if the city's a playground, uh, if the city's knowable, if you know, if the city is a, um, you know, you understand that the the end of the story is a hopeful ending. You know where it ends. Yep. I hope. You know, and yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And now so. you've we've heard uh, from some of these. Well, maybe just explain for a second the town halls. <laughs> these have been remarkable, uh, uh, remarkable events. Yeah, the uh, so here, what is it now? Probably two months ago, we uh, uh, the COVID flares up. Um, you know, you you feel like all heck is breaking loose, and uh, so we you know instantly tried to figure out what what can we do, how can we resource our network moving forward, and what became pretty clear um, quickly was that uh, our local leadership foundations wanted a place to gather. Uh, obviously virtually yeah. uh, to be able to kind of just get good content to, um, you know, hear about each other. How, what are you facing? So we, uh, we created what is now called the LF COVID-19 town hall that meets every Wednesday. Actually, I'll say as an aside here that um, for our listeners, they would be more than welcome. Uh, but it's seven o'clock in the morning. I should I should add that on the West Coast. On the West Coast, that's right. Yeah, five a.m. in Hawaii. <laughs> that's right. 
Yeah, and I think uh, four o'clock in uh, Pretoria, South Africa, and seven thirty at night in uh, in our Leaders Foundation in Delhi. Um, yeah, but we uh, we put our heads together and and really came up with uh, with essentially uh, Rick kind of a five um, uh, course. Uh, menu uh, for our local leadership foundations. Uh, the first is that we always try to have a, a bit of a pastoral theological reflection uh, by somebody. Um, you know, the notion here was that we really felt like one of the unique things of LF in this COVID moment was how were we viewing it theologically? Um, mm -hmm. you know, what were some of the pastoral elements? Uh, the second piece of it is a content expert. Um, and oftentimes I should add here that the, those two things can be done by one person, but we want them both to do something theologically as well as, you know, what is happening in the COVID space. Mm -hmm. uh, the third piece is that we always lift up a local leadership foundation and their work uh, just to be able to spotlight them, uh, you know, lift them up as kind of a best practice, uh, share, you know, uh, that, that practice. Uh, the fourth is to give an update on the COVID-19 um, uh, activation uh, uh, fund that we are, are raising money for right now. And then the fifth is any tools or templates <clears throat> that we might have created for our local leadership foundations. Um, and this can kind of, uh, you know, expand and collapse based on what is the COVID reality of that week. Um, yeah. You know, there's already been the stimulus bill, and so we had to pivot and deal with that. There, of course, uh, you know, were some other uh, realities that we had to, to kind of pay attention to. But by and large, that serves as the framework uh, for our town hall. And uh, it is a uh, it has been a pleasure, uh, you know, when we when we thought about the first one, uh, Rick, you know, it was it was interesting. There was really only uh, one person on a very short list uh, that we felt like uh, we needed to kind of be at our first town hall, and that's Dan Cardinelli. Mm -hmm. um, Dan is uh, is the president and CEO of Independent Sector, which is. I think probably the largest um, platform for nonprofit ag advocacy uh, in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, they're based back in Washington, D.C., and uh, we have become a, a partner of theirs. Uh, every local leadership foundation is a member of independent sector. Uh, one of the other things that Dan has asked leadership foundations to do is to uh, head up a faith-based task force uh, to uh, make sure that, uh, again, the faith voice uh, is being included, you know, in this this nonprofit uh, space, mm -hmm. actually more broadly, uh, uh, civil society. Um, and so that uh, Dan is is a, is a great friend and uh, and is probably as knowledgeable and thoughtful with regard uh, both to the civil society, society reality, but then how is COVID uh, going to impact uh, that civil society that we have, uh, you know, really made use of for many years. So um, it, uh, yeah, it was a great pleasure to have, to have Dan. And we're going to like, listen to uh, just an excerpt of, uh, of what he had to say in that town hall so that we can kind of get a sense of how valuable his voice was in that get together. 
Yeah. I should also add here, Rick, just because of my biases, uh, one of the ways that, uh, that Dan and I have connected uh, is that not only was he the uh, replacement for Bill Milliken at Communities and Schools, and I, of course, at Leadership Foundation, so we were kind of connected at the hip uh, from the get-go following these two urban legends, uh, but he's a Jesuit guy. And so oh. we, uh, we've, uh, we've had lots of good opportunity to, uh, to talk, uh, Jesuits. We both have a deep affection for James Allison, mm-hmm. so lots, lots of things that kind of overlay. But is he a Jesuit cigar guy? I don't think he is, but, but I'm, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, work, I'm working on that. <laughs> we all have, we all have our distinctives, but yeah, well, it'll be great. Let's listen to his, uh, his, some of his input at the town hall and then we'll come back. Wonderful. Before I I start, I just want to say I'm uh, uh, kind of deeply moved um, just uh, entering into this community and um, really cognizant of the fact that uh, your work, um, as you've kind of laid out this morning, is uh, probably more critical than ever. And the amazing nexus of the uh, direct service work that the VAST network does and holds this perspective um, and a vision around bringing faith into the lives of lived activities um, and the sense-making that I'll talk a little bit about. I just want to say how honored I am and how nurturing it is. The days for all of us have been long, and uh, I was so grateful and honored to be able to join you all this morning and to look forward to continued connectedness and learning with you. So what I'd I'd, I'd like to offer this morning are three big buckets uh, that I hope are helpful. One is what are the operating assumptions about the current pandemic and its implications that uh, we're using for our own work at independent sector and our observations in engaging with lots and lots of CEOs across uh, the range of civil society. There seems to be a convergence on some core assumptions that are contouring then how folks are responding and beginning to chart a path forward. Secondly is uh, what we're observing within civil society um, and uh, both uh, the challenges and then some of the bright spots that are happening. And then uh, finally around the public policy work and hopefully uh, providing you all with um, some real access to information that will enable you to navigate this time. Um, and then always open to questions. I'm going to try and do this in about 15 or 16 minutes and then have as much time uh, as uh, is appropriate for you all to answer any questions or to have a dialogue. Uh, but I do want to say, please don't hesitate either directly or through Dave to uh, share uh, questions, concerns, observations, and bright spots. Uh, I think we're looking for that all at Independent Sector. Finally, I just want to say how proud I am that uh, Leadership Foundation is a member. Um, I cite it often. Uh, you all came in as a powerful signal that faith communities have a, a materially important place in the architecture and ongoing evolution of civil society. So the assumptions, uh, let me start with that first. Uh, there are uh, a number of operating assumptions that I think folks uh, that I'm observing hold. First, that the um, the pandemic and its immediate impacts will probably have a um, six to eighteen month impact on the rhythms of lives. So we've seen this massive disruption. Uh, the experts I'm talking to, and I know many of you are similar experts and have lots of access to um, the wisdom outside of uh, your daily lives. 
but um, most folks see that they're going to have to think about navigating their institutions um, in really uncharted water for much longer than just a couple of months. Um, and then generally, the immediate impacts of the um, the pandemic is about an 18 to 36 month impact. Specifically, that's looked at as business uh, disruption. And uh, as you all were citing at the beginning the, of a quick pivot from a bridge span plan to a COVID-19 plan, um, this is a, a very uh, common now, I think, and smart leadership move. Not everybody's making it by far to kind of recognize that there has to be loss um, and grieving on the plans and the hopes and the the designs that uh, we all had laid out in a world that is really quite disrupted and probably changed at least for the middle term in a in a pretty radical way. Uh, our observation is right now governments across the world and certainly our own is one that's now leading the charge are um, intervening not so much to prevent a recession that's pretty much given, but to hopefully have a recession as opposed to a depression, which they are desperately trying to prevent. So we just saw the third piece of legislation since March 6th. There was an initial piece, and then on March 16th, a second piece, and then on Friday there was a third piece. We expect that there will be at least two, possibly three additional pieces over the next three to six months. Um, our team is already working on Capitol Hill with the current um, articulation of the next package. So the I think um, the federal governments across the world are and the central banks are desperately trying to keep us out of a depression, uh, a global depression. Um, what we do know is that um, unlike the any other crisis that we've had, <clears throat> the disruption is not localized the way a natural disaster is or uh, contained the way the financial crisis was, but it has this kind of um, extraordinary or diffuse disruption, fundamental disruption across all elements. Um, in the United States, our economic activity, about 72% of it is really driven primarily out of business. And uh, small business makes up the majority of the business community. And as you all are acutely aware of, um, we're not seeing um, kind of a disruption. We're seeing a fundamental blow up in uh, small business. So unemployment, as I'm sure you all have been reading, we expect to spike up to anywhere between 15 and 20% for um, a six-month period and then could, depending on the kinds of intervention government is able to help uh, with the economy and support civil society. So that's going to create an enormous safety net uh, drain as well as uh, disrupt the interconnectedness that civil society has with business and government. So to sum up, I think the assumptions are for the next 18 to, to 36 months, we're going to have to become quite agile in routinely assessing the way uh, the full weight of the impact. And I don't think we're, we're still going down. Um, hopefully in the next um, three to eight weeks, we will hit bottom and begin to come up. I was on a phone call yesterday with an, uh, the international development community, and they're quite concerned about uh, places. I know that a number of the Leadership Foundation Network works in where there is uh, really under-resourced communities where the pandemic may live for quite a long time, and that will have global implications. So uh, it's unclear how the recovery is going to unfold. So 
that's the um, this operating assumptions we at Independent Sector are using and we're certainly sharing with our network. And as we do our public policy work, that's the framework that we're holding. As a reminder, the second point around civil society, just I've mentioned this last time I was with you, it's it's quite vast in the U.S., 1.6 million nonprofits, 12 million professional staff, 77 million volunteers, and up until the pandemic, a trillion dollars worth of economic activity and contribution to the American economy. The single largest number block of organizations are faith-based organizations, although the the largest economic engines of civil society would be the education and the health uh, sectors, so hospitals and healthcare institutions that are nonprofits, and of course, the vast number of uh, educational institutions, primary higher ed, are, are nonprofits. That's not to say that health and human service organizations aren't quite large. They are 112, 120,000 institutions across the U.S., so they're, they're quite robust. Um, we are seeing, um, we've done a fair amount of surveying, and there are four uh, or five key issues that are routinely coming up, and they were reflected in your rebirth, or excuse me, the relief, rebirth, and the rehabilitation piece. Um, so organizational sustainability, how do you navigate these waters? Um, do you go out of business? Do you fire employees? Do you furlough? How do you deal with your funders, your boards? Um, how do you uh, manage um, the bricks and mortar uh, demands you have with uh, direct service demands you may have? So there's a whole bunch of questions folks are asking. We're beginning to put together materials and, and get those out there. Secondly, human resources, you know, we've all gone to this virtual world. Some um, organizations are uh, prepared because they actually, um, lent, their work lent itself much more to working virtually. And many of the frontline folks have never worked this way. So you see amazing amounts of creativity, but the amount of technical assistance and know-how, not to mention the hardware, the actual tools to be able to shift your workforce and all the accompanying issues that come with that. Public policy is top of mind in folks, uh, which we're delighted and shocked with. I think the recognition that federal government uh, still has a powerful and probably uniquely powerful role right now in helping a nation as big and as vast in its economic uh, engine as the U.S. Uh, I think we had prior to uh, uh, the pandemic, we had seen a lot of public policy kind of creativity and activity happening on the local level. And that has now shifted folks' focus a lot. Uh, community impact. Um, the, you started this, uh, this webinar with a recognition that the most vulnerable are going to be hit the hardest and recover the slowest. And organizations like uh, the Network of Leadership Foundations are on the front lines of that. Um, the uh, unique challenge, I think, about this pandemic is that the sets of, of um, institutions that have often been able to pivot and be responsive and support frontline actors are now compromised, businesses and other nonprofit institutions, which are probably equally slammed from an economic point of view. And then finally, this notion of interconnectivity and communications. I think there's um, a, an explosion of activity and there's a lot of siloing. Um, and how do you now bring places like Leadership Foundation, which needs to go deep and build its own sense of community and connect it up into the larger set of actors that are critical in order for all of us to get our work done? So these are issues we're seeing from the micro all the way to kind of macro civil society. Wow, how amazing. 
uh, is his input to the organizations that are, uh, you know, doing this amazing work, especially um, when you put it in the context of uh, not only the urban work, but uh, the, the small business world. And one of the things I kept thinking about is that uh, when you hear Dan talk, you begin to understand how he sees the city. And the fact that he even wants a task force from LF to be at the table for spiritual and theological, uh, you know, uh, point of view and, and uh, focus yeah. that goes to show you that he sees that yeah. in the city. And, and yeah. I think that's, that's uh, right on point to what we're talking about today for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it was, it was interesting, Rick, I, uh, uh, part of his response there was, was me asking him the question, um, you know, about leadership and how he, um, you know, stays afloat. I mean, what, what's, what's the ballast, right. That, uh, mm -hmm. that keeps him, keeps him moving forward. Um, and, and there really was, you know, I think a sense in which he is, is seeing the spirit, um, moving, uh, breaking things open. Um, you know, I think, uh, new things are beginning to emerge. I think to give, to give Dan, I think a, a deep sense of, of hope. And one of the things that, you know, he touched on, which I, I just think is true. And I certainly have witnessed this is that there is a almost insatiable hunger, uh, for just being connected, um, mm -hmm. you know, having meaningful connections, um, and that we can't take that for granted anymore. Um, and so I, uh, again, yeah, find him to be, uh, so articulate, uh, so thoughtful, uh, with regard to that. And, uh, of course, how could he not be because he's, he's Jesuit. Um, but, uh, no. <laughs> so, well, that, that if you think about it, that we talked earlier about the fact that if holiness uh, is about being whole, even the fragmentation that everyone was feeling because of COVID, even the town hall idea was a, a collecting, you know, right. a, a putting together. And then for him to come uh, and then, you know, speak to that, I think is, is part of, uh, is where you see kind of the, you know, sort of the thread of hope through the fabric of our difficult times. And, and then you asked him uh, how in the world he could stay hopeful in these kind of times. And let's listen to what he said about that. Sounds great. Um, so a couple of things. One is, uh, I, um, I think what well, I think you know this a little bit, Dave, I'm on the retreat team of my parish. Um, and, uh, we, um, we're all in Lent and we have a routine of the five of us that run as volunteers, the retreat series for our parish. So we've gone to virtual zoom calls. Um, and what we found was that there was an explosion of, um, a desire. So we've actually expanded uh, our services to a couple times a week. So it grounds me in my own prayer life and then connects me to my spiritual community. Um, and I have been kind of just deeply humbled by the extraordinary contribution and the incredible movement of the spirit as the community comes together and begins to sense make on this. So that is on a personal level. Um, the second piece that I've observed, and I heard it a little bit at the beginning of the call, the amazing creativity of um, organizations. So I was on the 
the one of our members is the Boys and Girls Club of America. Jim Clark runs that. He's also a board member. So we were on the phone uh, last week um, as I was checking in, and he said, you know, uh, I just had to uh, fire 15% of their network's frontline staff. Um, and uh, he was expecting more layoffs. And they had to shut all of their uh, Boys and Girls Club. Um, at the same time, he, volunteers and staff um, stepped forward and said, all these first responders are making these Sof this Sophie's choice between leaving their family on, you know, kind of in, in vulnerable situations to go out to serve their community. So they've reopened many of these boys and girls clubs with these folks that are taking really their lives at risk in terms of their health to provide positive youth development for young people. And you hear these stories so that their, their parents can be first responders. You hear these stories all the time. So this notion that the spirit is breaking open the world and eliciting from us this amazing um, uh, courage to knit community is, is as alive as well as the pandemic. Um, so I find that enormously sustaining. Well, we certainly appreciate um, Dan's involvement in, was that the first town hall? He was, yep, <clears throat> he let yeah. off. Yeah, and that uh, is uh, no small reason why the uh, ensuing town halls have been uh, anticipated and well attended because uh, everybody got to see that, yeah, when when we can have some spiritual, you know, kind of encouragement and then we can have some content and some, you know, some people that really know, yeah. you know how to help us see the city. And yeah. then again, uh, to, to look at someone who's doing great work in a particular city. Um, yep. I'd like to say that um, uh, those of you that put your heads together to come up with the format were, um, you know, had a little injection there from the Holy Spirit, I think, to, <laughs> to come up with that because it's so helpful. And I know that um, uh, for me, uh, when I was listening, I, I again, I get stuck in, in, you know, you always get to use the big words, Dave, so I'm going to throw one out there. But uh, one of the things I teach at the University of Washington in a, one of these philosophy classes is I get to talk about hermeneutics, which is kind of a cool, fun word nobody ever uses. But it means Wonderful. how you interpret, of course, a hermeneutics in, uh, in literature would be how you maybe translate one language to another, how you interpret what is being said. But in, in the sense of uh, cultural hermeneutics or how do we how do we interpret COVID? You know, how do we explain yeah. what, what kind of story do we tell? Well, the thing that I found interesting is uh, uh, in teaching, uh, you know, about this topic, uh, it, it comes from the Greek god of the pantheon hermes who is kind of hijacked by the flower delivery companies you know the with the the wings on the shoes but really the hermes was the messenger god yeah and so it's it's the, the one who delivers the message yep and in fact one of the functions of uh, hermes as a, a figure in mythology was he also established the boundaries it was a, a hermeneutic exercise to to you know, determine even the boundaries of real estate. You know, this is our property. That's your property. This is our yeah. state. That's your state. Yeah. And it seems to me that um, the most important uh, storytellers, you know, in this time are those that have a, a sense of delivering a message that is hope based, you know, that it's hopeful. Yeah. And they're the hermeneutic leaders. And I think LF is, is standing apart in that, in that uh, regard. And also when, when someone helps you understand that, um, you know, these are the borders of this rationale, these are the borders of, you know, 
how to understand this over that. And in fact, of course, uh, one of the one of the ideas behind the uh, the Greek mythology was that he actually even established the border between, or he sort of patrolled the border between life and death. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's there's a lot of interesting uh, sort of interpretive. Uh, you know, exercise in understanding is sort of these old ancient Greek ideas, but uh, we are all of us involved in uh, seeing the world through our own lens. And that's, that's the hermeneutic. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's beautifully said, Rick. I I love the phrase. I'm going to chew on this, but the idea of a a hermeneutical leader um, makes good sense. I, I mean, I'm, I'm convinced, you know, when you get to the book of James and, uh, James begins to kind of wax eloquently on, you know, the power of the tongue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he he likens it, remember, to, you know, just a small little, you know, essentially match or the tiller on a boat. And it, it, it always struck me about, you know, what a what a remarkable analogy that it's 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 the smallest of things. Uh, that creates, you know, the biggest, the biggest effect. Yeah. And I do think uh, a leader and how she or he, um, uh, yeah, interprets and then, uh, you know, takes those words and uses them with people moving forward. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's hard to overstate, I think, how important that is. I had a mentor way back in the day, uh, Tom Skinner who uh, is one of the uh, part of the choir that, you know, the Leadership Foundations kind of stand on. But mm-hmm. Tom used to have this, this wonderful saying. He said, the biggest lie ever perpetrated on humankind was sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt, harm me. He says, give me sticks and stones any day. He goes, mm-hmm. I still am haunted by words that were used by others, you know, on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think, I think you're right. Um, absolutely. That we need to be hermeneutical leaders. Yeah. And I think also that um, I wandered off into the border idea there, but I think that now we see borders as um, divisions, like, you know, nationalism, this is our thing, that's your thing. And what, and, and that's what I've, I've benefited from in this hermeneutic exercise is to understand that they were actually put into place to create order mm-hmm. and, and also equity. And I think that uh, when LF does this hermeneutic leadership move in cities, you know, they're, they're changing, you know, who's included and who is excluded and changing the borders of, of, uh, you know, uh, fairness even. And right. certainly, you know, the, and one of the things that the COVID virus is, is, uh, uh, flip the light switch on is the inequity. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, that's a border issue. You know, that's we've right. drawn this line, like, you know, Hey, you're here, you're there. And, and so anyway, I think that, um, that the work of a hermeneutic leader or a leader that, sees the city uh, eschatologically has those kind of eyes, you know, Easter eyes yep. uh, is, is really, um, it's refreshing to me. And I think the town halls are reflecting that it's, it's uh, I like this phrase and this will be, maybe I'll, I'll stop talking. Wouldn't that be remarkable? But uh, <laughs> the practice you've taught me a lot about this. It's not holiness. You know, when I was a kid was just this uh, movement that was all about, don't do anything or, you know, you're doomed, but yeah. the practice of holiness, 
Talk to me about that in, in light of how you see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a number of different angles there, Rick. I mean, I think, um, if going back to our definition that holiness is fundamentally, um, not so much a moral category, although it has moral implications, I don't want to diminish that, but is actually a way of seeing, um, then the whole idea of, of becoming holy, um, again, has less to do with, <clears throat> did I do this or did I do that? Uh, and has more to do with practices like uh, when I come into a city, what do I see? Um, <clears throat> you know, when I see my neighbor, um, what am I encountering? Um, you know, when I uh, sit down with somebody who uh, finds herself uh, marginalized, um, you know, what what is actually being, you know, perceived at that that moment. <clears throat> and I think increasingly, Rick, what I've what I've discovered is that it's it's this asking myself the question always, what am I actually seeing right now? Um, and what does it mean that is probably the uh, primary practice of holiness that I have in my life. Um, I think I've said this to you before in this podcast, but um, I, I probably get as much as anybody to get out to uh, cities where we have local leadership foundations. Um, and it never, ever uh, surprises me, but always delights me when I get into a city um, and I begin to see the city through the eyes of that local leadership foundation. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it just begins to bloom. Um, and, and it's, it's that local leadership foundation that has obviously practiced, right? This idea of how do you see your city? How do you yeah. interpret your city? Yeah. Because ultimately that's going to dictate behavior. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's, uh, that's been a big part of my, uh, my quote unquote holiness practice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. I, you know, I had the privilege of officiating weddings and I actually did my first ever zoom wedding. Wow. And, uh, it was really wow. interesting because, you know, it's, there's something very special about being, you know, present, you know, really yeah. uh, in that little sort of that little Trinity of love there where you have the efficient and this, this couple and, but even on zoom, I could, I, I watched them look at each other huh. and there was something about how they saw each other. And I yep. still remember when, uh, uh, Larry Lloyd was talking about how, when he goes to, uh, a city that's inquiring about becoming a, a leadership foundation city, uh, the question he asks is, um, you know, tell me about your city, tell me, you know, and, and he's, he's, he's really inquiring. How do you see this city? And, and if, if you, if he can tell that yep. you, you love her, you know, that's, that's, right. that's, and I've seen that in, in, uh, you know, in those other contexts. And I think that's part of, uh, the beauty of what's happening, even something that even this virus can't shake out of us, that the idea of, uh, pushing against fragmentation, becoming collected and informed is all about, uh, the practice of holiness. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Well, I see it. And I thank you for, uh, uh, you know, the opportunity to, to oh, once Rick. again have a conversation. 
Absolutely. Yep. We'll pick up our next episode and we'll uh, continue to uh, to kind of march forward on uh, some of these ideas about uh, the the forgiveness, um, the hope and uh, the way of seeing the L what we call the LF way, Sidious Playground. There you Thanks, go. Dave. Thank you, Rick.